0: Hello again, I'm doing everything today, as um, so we can pray for our other pastors for Paul and Jeff on their notifications, God probably refresh them, uh, but it means I get the privilege of preaching this morning, and we're going to continue through our message series in 2 Corinthians, which we've been doing, going through these past few weeks, so if you have a Bible in front of you, then do turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where we'll be preaching from, I'm going to cover much of the chapter today. Uh, It will be projected as well, if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But then, if you can, do keep that in front of you, because we'll be referring back to the passage throughout the message, and we want to hear what God would say to us. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. So Paul writes this. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that the letter aggrieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, such that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that we get to draw from this morning like a well. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us gather from deep water. And would you please nourish and supply all that we need to our souls. Refresh us, revive us, satisfy us again in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So do keep that passage open in front of you as best we can. We can keep it up on the screens, and I'll trust whoever's at the back can flip back and forth as I refer to different passages. Do you know what it means to have your heart tied to someone else? To feel with them and feel for them. When they celebrate, you your heart celebrates. When they hurt, your heart hurts with them. I imagine that we all have an experience of this to some degree or another, maybe most intensely with family, maybe a parent or a spouse or a sibling, but we can also do it with friends, colleagues, neighbors. It can even happen. Our hearts can be tied even to complete strangers, maybe ones we read about in the news, if they're going through some sort of situation of, that um, generates strong feelings and that we, generates a connection between us. Every now and again I enjoy catching um, the highlights from shows like America's Got Talent. And I confess to you that I am a bit of a sucker for the golden buzzer winners. Um, those performances you know, that have the judges reaching for the golden buzzer that sends down a shower of golden confetti on the performer. And, of course, those those clips are always shown in a way to tug at the heartstrings, right? They give a little background story about the contestant, about how they got to be on on the show. And then they do the performance. At the end of the performance, the judges are all on their feet applauding. Everyone in the audience is applauding. And then in slow-mo, with some kind of emotional soundtrack, one of the judges reaches for the golden buzzer. And then the contestant's face has this kind of picture of shock and then there may be tears or there may be jumps for joy or maybe both and i admit that in those moments i find a little heart connection to those people and i share i find myself sharing in their joy my heart is tied ever so briefly to this complete stranger usually just long enough until i click on the next sh- next clip well from today's passage we see a far more strong a far stronger Tie as we hear from the Apostle Paul and the way his heart is connected to people far away in the church in Corinth. And we get to hear from a man whose heart has been transformed by God and by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we hear how his heart is tied to God's people, in this case in a particular city, in a way which is far more lasting than mine is to any talent show. And from hearing from Paul, We'll learn how God desires to transform all of our hearts and tie our hearts to others also. But before we jump into the passage, it's important, I think, to understand some of the context, because Paul's actually picking up a theme here in these verses, which he left off back in chapter 2. So we've been kind of in a kind of a hiatus coming through some other content that he wanted to cover. So I'm going to recap where he's been. So the Apostle Paul has written a previous letter to the church in Corinth. And he's been responding to some specific issues of flagrant sin with members of the church. But he's also addressed the whole church as well. He's had to address their collective failings in how they've responded to the situation and how actually someone, has, someone or group of people have turned the situation so that the church, church's heart is now opposed to Paul in some way. They are opposed to the apostle who had selflessly endured tremendous hardships, great affliction, all for the sake of bringing them the gospel. And now they were distancing themselves from him. Their love and their affection for Paul was greatly diminished and Paul felt it very keenly. His heart was tied to the people in this church. So Paul wrote his letter and he's immediately conflicted as to whether he'd really done the right thing. Could he just have overlooked the offense and spared this beloved church the pain of being corrected? Very quickly afterwards, he wants to know how the church has received his letter and how they've responded. He really had hoped to connect with Titus earlier on in his journeys. And so back in chapter 2, verse 13, we read that he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. And that's where he picks up again in our passage today in verse 5. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So even as well as physical conflicts around Paul, he knew internal conflict because he was forced to wait to hear how the church had responded to his letter. Well, finally... Titus connects with Paul and he brings him news about the church and it's good news, as we read in verse 6. It says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. You see, the letter worked. God had used it to speak to the church and to restore their affections for Paul, and Paul's heart rejoices at this news. But was his letter really worth it? Was it worth the risk? I mean, he took a big risk, right? Potentially offending people who were already unhappy with him, and potentially increasing the distance between them. Was this letter really a priority for him? After all, this is the Apostle Paul. I'm sure he had a pretty long to-do list. You know, preach the gospel where it's never been heard before. Go plant a church, test, Hebrew, test Timothy on his Hebrew grammar, go do the laundry, Write an uncomfortable letter to the church in Corinth. We would all understand it, I think, wouldn't we, if Paul found other things to do, if he focused on those churches who were eager for his ministry and who returned his affections. But for Paul. This was a priority, and it wasn't an issue that could be overlooked. It had to be addressed. Paul didn't see the Corinthians' behavior toward him as simply a personal offense, although as their father in the faith, he had every right to correct them for that. For Paul, this reflected a far more serious issue, one that warranted a stern letter to show them the seriousness of their error and call them to repentance. You see, Paul's chief concern for the Corinthian church was not their standing with him. It was their standing before God. As he says in verse 12, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. You see, Paul saw the conflict as it played out in God's sight and he wanted the Corinthian church to share that perspective. Not just because God's perspective is, of course, the right one and ultimately the most important one that any of us can ever have, but because in this case, it has the potential to be a matter of life or death. Or, in the words of verse 10, of salvation or death. Look again at verse 9 and 10. He says, As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And Paul as their spiritual father, as any good father, full of love and affection for his children, couldn't stand by and do nothing while his children flirted between salvation and death. That's the context of our passage. And as we consider it and the lessons it presents, we'll see that like the heart of the Apostle Paul, the Christian heart is tied... To the salvation of others. The Christian heart is tied to the salvation of others. And we're going to see how that plays out in different ways. But the first thing to notice, just as a kind of an introduction from the passage, is this reference to the salvation of others. I don't know when you think of salvation in the context of the scripture, whether you typically only think of it in terms of applying to non Christians. Certainly that is true. Um, everyone, until, before they're a Christian, needs to know salvation. And we saw back in chapter 5 that Christians are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And so we implore all people on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For all have sinned and we've all turned their, our backs on God and on his good and perfect ways. And we, his creatures deserve his punishment for such arrogance and rebellion. That's the death that Paul speaks of in the end of verse 10, that worldly grief leads to. But God didn't leave us there. In his love and in his mercy, he sent Jesus, his perfect son, and he made him to be sin for us. Taking the sin of those who trust him upon himself in exchange for giving us his Perfect life, his righteousness, his right standing before God, so that we can be restored to God and enjoy life with God and his salvation from the terrible punishment that was due to each and every one of us. But clearly, Paul's concern for the Corinthians and throughout Scripture is for those who are already Christians. And so we see that we can't move on from the importance of our salvation once we are Christians or once those around us are Christians, God calls us to be vigilant and focused on our salvation, on the salvation of those around us. Even though God is mighty to save, and he is able to keep all who turn and trust to Christ, in Christ, we are to remain vigilant and never to take our salvation and our walk with God for granted. So the Christian heart towards others needs to be tied to their salvation, whether they're Christian or non Christian, whether they're already in the church or by God's grace, perhaps yet to be added to the church. And we're going to see how the Christian heart for the salvation of others, both Christian and non Christian alike, is demonstrated in three ways from this passage and from Paul's example. First of all, we're going to see that the Christian heart knows great distress for the salvation of others. The Christian heart knows great distress for the salvation of others. We've already heard this from Paul. I've heard about his heart towards the Corinthian church when he didn't know how they had responded to his letter. In verse 5 of our passage, he says, our bodies had no rest. And that mirrors what he said back in chapter 2 when he said, my spirit was not at rest. In fact, in, in chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now we've seen that far from Paul stressing out about them because he was worried from a selfish point of view of what they thought about him, Paul was in distress for the Corinthian church because of the uncertainty of the state of their soul. Whether they were pressing in to the salvation that God has given, the new life that he gives them, or whether they were on a slippery slope to death, through disobedience to God. What we see here isn't simply the heart of an apostle to God's people. It's to be the heart of all Christians towards all others. I'm reminded of a testimony of, from 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon about his mother and the heart his mother had towards him as a boy as he was growing up under her care. And the distress that she had over the condition of his soul until he came to Christ. His sister, his mother rather, his mother Eliza, frequently pleaded with God to extend his saving mercy upon her children. Charles Charles records that on one occasion she prayed in this way Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment, if they laid not hold of Christ. For Charles, the thought of his own mother bearing witness against him pierced his soul and stirred his heart. Her prayers and intercessions made such a deep impression on the young man that many years later he wrote, wrote, How can I ever forget the tearful eye when she warned me to escape the wrath to come? And another time she wrapped her arms around his neck and simply cried to God, Oh, that my son might live before thee. See, her heart was tied to the salvation of her children and she knew great distress for their salvation. So we see the heart of the apostle, the heart of other Christians is to be for the salvation of those, all those around us. And yet, to be honest with you, when I'm presented with the example of Paul towards others, the heart of Spurgeon's mother toward her son, I can actually be tempted to discouragement. Because that's not my heart. Certainly not as consistently or as much as I would want it to be. Even towards my own family, who I love dearly, I find myself all too easily preoccupied with my own interests and my own comforts to even think about the condition of their souls, let alone no distress over them. And if, like me, you are tempted to discouragement, then I think the Apostle Paul would want to say another word to us. I think if we're discouraged by his example, then I think he would say that we're not looking at the full picture of his example. I think he would be quick to remind us that his heart was not naturally inclined to others. He was not naturally concerned for their eternal welfare. And he would be quick to turn our attention to Acts chapter 7, where we would read about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was stoned to death for his confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And those who stoned him laid their jackets at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution and even spurred him on as we read in Acts chapter 8, to ravage the church, busting into house after house and dragging men and women away and committing them to prison. The Apostle Paul would not want you to forget that that young man was him. It was only because of a encounter that he had with the risen Savior that the heart of wicked Saul was transformed into the heart of loving Paul the apostle to the churches. And Paul would remind us, would be the first one to remind us of God's power to transform even the most wicked heart and even the most hard and unmoving hearts and replace it with a heart of flesh that beats for him and for the people God cares about. All of us, I am sure, recognize that we can grow in various ways in having our hearts tied to others. And out of that connection t- can be concerned and potentially distressed about their eternal position. A personal favorite verse of mine from Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God has put eternity into the hearts of man. You and I have never met someone, we've never read about someone, we've never heard about someone who does not have eternity before them. The question is, where will that eternity be spent? God's heart is for Christians who have already known the grace for his salvation to be tied to others out of love and care so much about their eternal home as to know great distress for their salvation. And we can go to God, and I beg that we do, go to God in prayer and ask him for daily grace to continue to transform our hearts knowing that he has the power and the desire to do so to grow our hearts in love and even grow them to the point of knowing distress over others but God's desire for our hearts to know distress for the salvation of others is not for that distress to be to be passive to remain inactive God's desire is that distress leads to action Which brings us to our second point in looking at the example of Paul. And that's that the Christian heart causes grief for the salvation of others. The Christian heart causes grief for the salvation of others. For Paul, the distress that he felt over the salvation of the church in Corinth led him to action. Although it was action that at least initially caused him even greater distress. In verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul's unshakable concern for the church in Corinth spurred him to write a stern and corrective letter, fully aware that his words would cause them discomfort and distress. So much so to the point that he calls it, describes it as grieving, but Paul's goal clearly was not simply to grieve the church, but that grief would turn to repentance. And by God's grace, it did, as we go, see in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And perhaps the most important verse in this chapter, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance means turning around, both in mind and in heart, turning away from something that's opposite to God and to what God says is good and right and essentially opposite to God Himself, and turning away from those things and turning to Him and turning to His ways. And Paul shows us that there is a path here that the Christian wants others to walk down. They've already walked it down themselves and they want others to walk it as well. It's a path that goes from grief to repentance to salvation. Now, we should be clear here. Paul is not saying that repentance is the cause of salvation. As if I can convince God to save me because I have repented. The Bible teaches that there is nothing that we can do that will earn our salvation, even if we repented really, really well. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Rather, repentance is another result of God's grace at work in undeserving sinners. It is his gift to us that turns our hearts away from things that we used to cling to dearly and think we could not live without. Things that used to define us. And to turn from those things to Jesus Christ and embrace him. Trusting in him for his death for us and turning to follow in him, follow him and in his ways. Paul's heart and the Christian heart, when God ties them to others in love, should be willing and ready to speak or to write or communicate certain words that we anticipate could grieve in the desire that God use them to produce repentance leading to salvation. Now that is entirely against the way of our culture today. The world around us preaches the exact opposite and claims the exact opposite about love. If you are teaching someone to love, if you're teaching to love someone, that means you should accept them just the way they are. And if you say something that causes hurt to a person or tells them that they need to change, then that is a sign that you don't love them. is the message of the world. And the Apostle Paul and Scripture and, dare I say, common sense says that that is nonsense. That leaving someone in a way that is opposed to God, not caring about them to do anything or to say anything, knowing that their end is their destruction, that cannot possibly be the way of love. Now, certainly there are ways to speak to people, to call attention to their needs to repent, and to turn to Christ that are unloving. You can speak the truth harshly and without any care for its effect. Paul is not talking about doing that. We've already seen that Paul wrote his letter with much tears over concern and love for them. And that's why this is the second point and not the first point. If our hearts are not first distressed, for the salvation of others, we should first seek God's grace to address our own hearts before we go on to cause grief for the salvation of others. So by way of application for us, are you willing to address others over sin? In love, carefully, prayerfully, with pastoral counsel and support as needed and appropriate? And are you ready to receive correction as an expression of Christian love and receive it and examine your own heart before God? Because both of those will be natural applications from that truth. That we are to cause grief for the salvation of others when our hearts are tied to them. Now Paul's word also contains an important distinction that we would do well to spend a moment looking at. He tells us that there are two types of grief. There is godly grief and there is worldly grief. Now, certainly having no grief over sin is very dangerous and should be cause for great alarm. But just because someone feels grief over wrongdoing doesn't mean automatically that that grief is from God or that it is oriented toward God. Worldly grief still feels sorrow for sin. But it is a sorrow because sin has been exposed and has caused an embarrassment to pride or reputation before man. Or because sin has been exposed and led to punishment that threatens the love of comfort and security. Worldly grief is focused on self. It may only last until self is restored, either in reputation or in comfort, or it may wallow in that loss with no hope in sight of any change. It does not matter whether it's brief or prolonged. Either way, the end result is the same. It is not true repentance that leads to restoration with God and salvation. The end result is continued self-centeredness, and at the point of judgment before God, as verse 10 says, it leads to death and eternal punishment. In contrast, though, godly grief may look very similar from the outside, but on the inside, everything is different. Sorrow for sin is because there is an understanding and a sense that our sin is primarily against a holy God. It can know fear and regret for punishment against sin, but it's not punishment from the world, it is punishment from God. Godly grief accepts that even though I might be truly sorry, God would still be just to bring punishment for my sin. And as we've seen from the example of the church in Corinth, godly grief also produces godly fruit. Repentance is meant to be demonstrated through the fruit that it bears. For the Corinthians, in verse 11, we see that they restored their affection and their zeal for Paul. And in verse 15, it says that they are walking out in obedience to God's words to them. So godly grief and repentance doesn't mean that a person is now perfect and they will never sin again. They may well, or they will continue to sin in different ways. They may even sin again in identical ways. But godly grief does produce godly fruit in the life and character of Christians. So we would do well to be sensitive and aware of both types of grief, both in ourselves and in others. And we should be careful not to distinguish them simply by outward appearance. We're told from the example of Esau, the Old Testament character but reported in Hebrews chapter 12, when Esau realized the extent of his sin in selling his birthright to Jacob, It says he produced tears, but his grief was worldly. It was over his personal loss and focused on God. And it wasn't true repentance. Now certainly we want our emotions to match our understanding and our faith. And God works in us over the course of our Christian lives to align us this way. But I know even from my own example, when I first heard the gospel as an 18-year-old, and soon after repented of living for myself, and turned to God and trusted Christ as my Savior, there wasn't a tremendous outward sign of sorrow. Although I know that there was, for the very first time, a mustard seed of faith, that meant I was now concerned that my sin was before God and against Him. And since then, many moons ago, till now, by God's grace, my, I find my sorrow over sin and the demonstration of that sorrow is now more reflective of the seriousness of sin and the majesty and holiness of God. But I'm not satisfied that it's where I think it should be, that I see sin as God sees sin, that I am grieved for sin as God is grieved for sin, but I see his work in me. And I also don't trust in my expression of grief and repentance to be the basis for which God forgives me. I trust in my Savior, Jesus Christ, and in his blood shed for me. That is my hope and my confidence and the hope and confidence that we all can have in God receiving us when we turn to him. So, brothers and sisters, pray for God's grace to respond to his prompting over sin with godly grief. And do not be content with worldly grief. Respond with godly grief leading to repentance and salvation. Parents in particular, as you raise your children to know God, it is a very good thing, the scriptures tell us so, it is a good thing to teach them to understand the seriousness of sin and that disobedience brings appropriate discipline. But do not be content that they show grief over sin if it's only worldly sin, sorry, worldly grief that is focused on self. Be sure that you're talking with your children and praying with them and praying for them that the grief they know from being disciplined is in response to God's holiness and His justice. And be sure that you're communicating to them that He has provided a way to be restored to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, we have seen that by God's grace, the Christian heart knows great distress for the salvation of others and is willing to cause grief for the salvation of others. And if that was all, you'd be right to think, well, that doesn't really sound all that appealing. Hey, I become a Christian and I get to worry about the salvation of others and occasionally I get to speak painful truths to one another. Well, that is not all that comes with having the Christian heart tied to others' and their salvation. And hopefully you've already seen it in this passage because it occurs so much. Paul's overwhelming sense towards the Corinthian church was not of distress, nor of grief, but it was of joy and of comfort. And that's our third point. The Christian heart finds great joy and comfort in the salvation of others. Twelve times in this passage... Paul speaks of his joy and his comfort in learning from Titus that the church has known godly grief, has repented, and is reestablished in the salvation of God. Ending in our last verse, verse 16, I rejoice, he says, because I have complete confidence in you. Because Paul's heart is tied to the church and has known distress from the church's sin against God and the regret of bringing sorrow over that sin, it means that Paul's heart is also open to receive joy and comfort in their joy and comfort as they are now restored to God and enjoy the salvation afresh that he gives. Joy that comes to Paul, not merely because he is restored to them, but because chiefly because they are now restored to God. Now, knowing that restoration and knowing that it's God's work in them, Paul is able to express his confidence in them that they are going forward in faithful obedience to God. So we see from Paul that as God works to tie your heart to others, yes, it means you are vulnerable to knowing distress and discomfort for their salvation. But it also means your heart is open to receive a far greater joy and comfort as you see God's work of grace in other people's lives, in restoring and building themselves up in Him, to walk with Him and enjoy and delight in His salvation. It's one of the greatest joys of being a member of a local church, like like King of Grace Church, to be able to witness firsthand the power and grace of God in the lives of dear brothers and sisters. As you press on in your salvation with God, and it is a great comfort To know that although we all face many temptations and many struggles both from the world around us and also from within our own hearts to see God holding you firm and walking with you and you walking with Him as as He sustains you through those trials. For all of us we should recognize that this joy and this comfort requires walking down the path of distress and discomfort for the salvation of others first. Now, we can let, we can choose to let, those things harden our hearts to others in a little self-protection, withholding affection, or maybe being skeptical of one another when we express repentance. But to do so also hardens our hearts to the sharing and enjoyment of future joy and comfort through their salvation. Paul's example and God's call to us is not to harden our hearts towards others, but to open them. If they sin, pursue them, love them, call them to repent, and then share fully in the joy and comfort with them of their restoration to God. Notice too, there is another practice going on in this passage. A practice which I call godly gossip. I don't know if you ever considered that there is a godly form of gossip. In verse 7, we see Titus talking to Paul about the Corinthian church. And in verse 14, we see of Paul boasting to, the, to Titus about the Corinthian church. These boasts, these sharing of the, the God's work in the lives of others, it's not for personal honor to increase pride hey, look and see what I've done. It's all about giving honor to God and increases one another's joy and comfort in what God has done. And that's something we get to do as well in this church, both on a Sunday morning, at other gatherings, when when you're at home with your family, when you have meals, times together, any other interactions. We are invited to share in joy and comfort as we can share of what God is doing in each other's lives. So I want to encourage you as you do that already, continue to do it more and more. Identify and highlight, see what God's work, what God what is at work in the lives of those around you, and call that out among one another. Do it in your families. Do it here as well on a Sunday. The Christian heart is tied to the salvation of others, and it knows great distress for the salvation of others. It causes grief for the salvation of others. And it finds great joy and comfort in the salvation of others. Given the time, let me close in prayer. And if I can ask the band to come up, please. Father God, you have work to do in all of us. And we praise you and thank you that for many it is a work you've already started when you first called us to know your son, Jesus Christ. And you have given us a new heart. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Continue to help us be transformed into the likeness of your Son, who loves us unconditionally, without limits, whose heart was distressed to the point of giving of himself. And now works to transform us and is the first one to lead in joy and celebration when we, call, when we turn to you for salvation. So please help us to do the same. Help us to have hearts tied to one another, both within our church and beyond, to those who know you and those who do not yet know you. Help us to take those steps of being distressed, of being willing to grieve with others over the sin. Help us to do so wisely and carefully, but help us also to rejoice and know comfort as we see you working. And we give you praise and glory for the fact that you do. Amen.